We're excited to announce that our very own podcasting platform, Zencaster, has become a new sponsor to the show. Check out the podcast discount link in our show notes and stay tuned for why we love using Zen for the podcast. You're listening to the Archaeology Podcast Network. Hello out there in uh, archaeology podcast land. This is Dr. Alan Garfinkel. I'm the president and founder of the California Rock Art Foundation. And what we do is we identify, evaluate, manage and conserve rock art both in Alta, California and in Baja, California. We conduct field trips, we have trainings, exercise, we do research, and in every way possible, we try to preserve, protect, and coordinate treasures of Alta and Baja California rock art, of which there are many and diverse. We also work closely with Native Americans and uh, partner with them to recognize and protect sacred sites. So for more info about the fabulous California Rock Art Foundation, you can go to carockart.org. Also, I'm, I'm open to give me a call, 805-312-2261. We would uh, welcome sponsorship or underwriting, uh, helping us to defray the costs of our podcasts, and also membership in California Rock Art Foundation. And of course, donations, since we are a 501c3 nonprofit scientific and educational corporation. God bless everyone out there in podcast land. You're listening to the Rock Art Podcast. Join us every week for fascinating tales of rock art, adventure, and archaeology. Find our contact info in the show notes and send us your suggestions. Well, hello out there in podcast land. This is your host, Dr. Alan Garfinkel. We're introducing the Rock Art Podcast, episode 37, and this is one you don't want to miss. I'm unveiling uh, some of my newest and most cutting edge and extremely controversial ideas regarding the uh, revolutionary meanings of Koso rock art, taking it back to its earliest archaic roots. All right, everybody, welcome to the Rock Art Podcast. I'm Chris Webster, and I'm again interviewing Dr. Allen on his podcast. As we mentioned in the introduction, we are going to talk about Coastal Rock Art and some things that you've been working on and thinking for the past, you know, much of your life working in this region. So let's first place the Coso range for those of that might not have heard our episodes talking about it, or maybe this is their first episode. Well, like, what is Coso Rock Art? Who are the Coso people? Where were they? Let's have the whole story. So Coso Rock Art on the world stage is one of those areas that has has world-class rock art. It's in Eastern California. It's on the mm-hmm. very uh, westernmost edge of the Great Basin, kind of in uh, Eastern Kern and Southern Inyo counties. It's a principally volcanic area. It's in an area that's along the eastern skirt of the far southern Sierra Nevadas and only gets a few inches of rain each year. It's a couple of uh, valley systems away from Death Valley, which of course is one of the hottest and driest places <laughs> on earth for a variety of reasons. I understand that right. it has the world's record for being one of the hottest hottest uh, places that people have recorded temperature, 135 degrees ground temperature yeah. at one point. But Coso is recognized worldwide because of its unusual uh, density or proclivity. The amount of rock art there is rather astounding. Conservative estimates, 100,000 individual elements in an area about 100 square miles. That estimate has been doubled recently to about 200,000 images as a minimum. 
and also because it uh, is highly realistic or representational. So there is a lot of imagery, about half the imagery are depictions of animals or people or other figures and other subjects that people can at least uh, appear to understand or represent. Mm -hmm. I would say about half of them are bighorn sheep, but there's also a class of decorated animal humans. There's deer, there's chuckawalla, there's people dancing, there is uh, hunters, both with bows and arrows and with darts. There's depictions of darts, points, on and on. There's dogs chasing bighorn sheep as they're hunting. There's quail depicted. What am I forgetting? Oh, and there's many, many serpents, uh, you know, pictures of, of rattlesnakes and other sort of figures as well. And uh, many of these depictions are panels or, you know, graphically quite captivating and amazing. By many estimates, Koso has the greatest density of rock art in the entire Western Hemisphere. So that means there's a lot of, lot of it in a small area. <laughs> what do we know about the age of the coastal rock art again? Like how? I, I think we can. We can. When, we, when did they? Yeah, yeah. We can. We can all agree that the that that the rock art has been crafted for about you know the uh, very late Pleistocene or early Holocene for the last ten thousand years through historic times. The bulk of the rock art was probably crafted, I would say, during the Middle Holocene or Middle Archaic to about the uh, earliest part of the uh, late prehistoric. Let's say from about, let's say from about 6,000 BC to about AD uh, 1000. I know that's a huge, okay. huge slash of time, but the Koso artisans were busy <laughs> and they see, <laughs> and they seem to have been very active, especially during what they call the Newberry period which is about 2000 BC to about AD 1. And it seemed to have even picked up in activity during that last uh, spurt of activity or fluorescence from about AD 1 to about AD 1000 or 1300. Mm -hmm. So okay. a lot of pictures, a lot of activity, beautiful imagery. It's uh, principally on basalt, on uh, lava flows. The area is, vo is very mm -hmm. volcanic. It is also a geothermal area. Coso Hot Springs is a thermal pool of bubbling, 200 degree Fahrenheit water that exists where the uh, geothermal facility is that produces energy sufficient to uh, run a city or two. So yeah, all, all of that and much more. Yeah, absolutely. And some of it is locked away onto a secure Navy base that we've both been on because uh, we've talked about Little Petroglyph Canyon and some of the other sites around there where just the site density and the, the rock art panel density is so high in that canyon. It's just phenomenal. Yes. Uh, one of the reasons it is so, uh, I guess, known or recognized and considered uh, a real treasure is because it's locked behind uh, gates. It's one of the most secure places, probably in the United States entirely. It's mm -hmm. it's where we develop the weaponry, the drones and the missiles that uh, we use to protect our nation and deal with some of the terrorism issues that we've had. And so since the uh, 
1940s, the area has been uh, locked up and protected, which is rather interesting. It's kept it kept it rather in good shape and in, in, in tremendous uh, high quality and high preservation. There are herds of wild horses and uh, other animals in in the base, and the area is, uh, besides being rich in archaeological sites and rock art sites, it's also rather impressive when it comes to the biota and the flora because it's mm-hmm. very well preserved and extremely beautiful. Right. For those who like the desert. (laughs) (laughs) It's definitely a unique landscape. Having spent the last, I don't know, seven, eight months on the East Coast, basically, of the United States. I'm currently in Massachusetts, right on the border of New Hampshire. Uh Man, such a different environment compared to that. It's so amazing. Like night and day, huh? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. My mother-in-law had had never seen a Joshua tree. And so these are those, uh, those, those thorny... Mm-hmm. That when the um, immigrants saw them, they looked at the branches and said, "It looked like uh, Joshua himself was throwing out his arms towards the celestial or divine sphere." <laughs> so they called them Joshua trees. But when my mother-in-law saw them, she uh, was provoked and said, "That's a poor excuse for a tree. <laughs> That's not a tree." Mm-hmm. <laughs> Where's the leaves? Show me nice. the shade. Show nice. me the shade. Show me the shade, Alan. Yeah. So, anyways, <laughs> this yeah. Coso rock art on the on the world stage, having to do with rock art uh, controversy and rock art research, has been, uh, you know, front and center showcased, relating to the various mm-hmm. alternative platforms for explanation regarding rock art, including. Uh, shamanism, including uh, altered states of consciousness, hunting magic, looking at the panels uh, for understanding of uh, mythology and creation stories of the indigenous people, issues of prehistoric population movements and replacement. I could go on and on. So Mm -hmm. there's a variety of research questions that center on our understanding of Koso rock art, also its age, antiquity, and subject matter, and how to best interpret it and understand it. Well, how about we leave that as the stage setting before we get into the really the major topic on the other side of a break? I think we should do that. That way we can have an unfettered discussion about our primary topic for today. So let's take a break and we'll see you in a minute. Chris Webster here for the Archaeology Podcast Network. We strive for high quality interviews and content so you can find information on any topic in archaeology from around the world. One way we do that is by recording interviews with our hosts and guests located in many parts of the world all at once. We do that through the use of Zencaster. That's Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R. Zencaster allows us to record high quality audio with no stress on the guest. Just send them a link to click on and that's That's it. Zencaster does the rest. They even do automatic transcriptions. Check out the link in the show notes for 30% off your first three months or go to Z-E-N-C-A-S-T-R.com and use the code ROCKART. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich, but you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it 
every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. Welcome back to episode 37 of the Rock Art Podcast. And we are talking about coastal rock art, but more specifically, some of the things you've been thinking about and revelations you've had about coastal rock art in recent years as, as a result of all your years of study on it. So in segment one, we kind of set the stage. If you, for some reason you didn't hear that, go back and listen to segment one. We talk about <laughs> coastal rock art. <laughs> if, if you happen to find this rock, this episode, you know, part of the way through, go check that out. And then let's bring back our, our major topic for discussion here. So what, where are we going with this? Well, let's jump, let's jump in and we'll talk about some some bits of serendipity. I've been uh, studying rock art, uh, specifically Coso rock art. I began publishing on it back in 1983, maybe even earlier, 1980. Mm. I could, my master's thesis related to it as well as uh, an article that I did that was uh, published in the journal of California and uh, great basin anthropology. And I published, I haven't stopped publishing and I did a documentary film on it, and and my uh, my PhD dissertation was published with the Matarango Museum, mm-hmm. and then uh, article after article and publication after publication relates to uh, various subjects that have been considered interesting and relevant. So I thought I knew a thing about it, a thing or two about it, but uh, what I had originally recognized was they have an archive. And the archive's on base, and they might have some digital photographs. And I said, you know, I've, I've got hundreds, thousands of pictures all over the base of Coso rock art, but you never know what you're missing, and you don't know what someone else might have seen that you haven't seen. So, Alan, go there, you know, schedule a time, and uh, spend a little time, go through whatever digital images they have, and download them and get copies of them. Mm-hmm. So I did that. And surprisingly, I saw quite a number of images that were rather extraordinary and things that I had never seen before and and wasn't really sure what they were all about. One of those images was a couple of uh, solid-bodied animal-human figures. Mm -hmm. The reason I say that, they call them therianthropes or, you know, these zoomorphs. They're, They're figures that are depicted... And that uh, may have avian legs and feet and uh, may have feathers or other embellishments on their head. They're obviously either super mundane beings, celestial beings, deities of sorts. Other peoples have, have, have called them shamans or religious adepts. Mm-hmm. So I saw these. I saw two of them on a, on a uh, way up in the Coso uh, uh, Peak, way up about... 8,000 feet in the Kosos, about as high as you could get in that area. Yeah. And these two figures were both holding snakes in both hands. And these were mm-hmm. rather obvious in terms of what kinds of snakes. They were rattlesnakes in both hands. And although the uppermost figure, both of them were rather large, the uppermost figure in part was occluded by sort of water that had alkaline water that had stained the image uh, yet the um the lower one you could see it definitely was a female the attributes the feminine attributes of what they call pendant labia were rather explicit mm-hmm. 
Mm-hmm. And and besides in both hands having rattlesnakes, they had huge Elko series projectile points, very hmm. realistically, very representationally above both their heads in full display. Really? They were enormous. And wow. I said, I said, hmm. <laughs> <laughs> boy, that boy, that's if if that isn't intriguing, I don't know what is. We do know yeah. that Elk, Elko series points are temporally diagnostic, chronologically diagnostic. They were most popular during the Middle Archaic, from about 2000 BC to about AD one, and we know that precisely because we have a lot of radiocarbon dates, a lot of stratigraphic information, uh, chronological information on these, including radiocarbon dates on uh, darts, actual dart points that are connected to these Elko series points, the four shafts that are made of plant material from dry caves that we have dated. So we're, we're quite certain that at least many, if not most of those types of projectile points were found during that period. So I said, well, that was interesting. Hmm. You know, la, 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 sis, boom, ba, put it in the back of my mind. <laughs> Well, then I'm hiking later on down Little Petroglyph Canyon, which is the only canyon that's open to the general public for their uh, visitation and review. And I, I see a panel that I haven't seen before, which is amazing because I've been down that canyon so often. And on that panel is a solid bodied figure that is holding snakes in both of its hands. And I had never seen that before. I said, well, that's interesting. Right. There's a, a lot of comparison here. We're down at the base. We're at five, you know, 5,000 feet. We're not at the valley floor in the uplands. But obviously, then there's something going on here. They're, they have recurrent imagery that seems to be communicating the same, same sort of thing. And the rest of the panel seemed rather ethereal and hard to read. Uh, it, had, it had five figures around it, and these figures appeared to have their hands upwards towards the sky or the cosmos. And they had something, kind of an amorphous blob that looked like, you know, uh, almost like a parachute above them. Mm-hmm. And then this uh, figure that hold, held the snakes had a definite crescent moon below them. And I go, wow, that's, pre- that's pretty amazing. And so yeah. I said, well, yeah, that's, that's interesting. That's amazing. That's, that's wonderful. But what does it all mean? So, that, so yeah. I put that, put that back in, in the back of my mind as well. So fast forward a few years later, and I hear about a, a woman. Her name is Carolyn Boyd. She has a mm-hmm. nonprofit rock art foundation in South Texas. It's called Shumla, S-H-U-M-L-A. And she's been studying Pecos rock art. And Pecos rock art is principally paintings. And I believe they date to a similar period, thousands of years old, and they're very elaborate. And she published a book. She'd been studying them for a decade or more. And she publishes a book. It's a hardback book, very long, very complicated, very elaborate, very theoretical. And it wins the Society for American Archaeology best new book in archaeology. And I go, wow, 
Mm-hmm. <laughs> it must be important, <laughs> right? So, <laughs> right? So I say, I better get a copy of it. It's 60 bucks. All right. Spend the 60 bucks, get the book. I open it up. I look at it. As I am prone to do on occasion, I go to the back and look at the bibliography. And I'd say 70% of the references are all in Spanish. <laughs> and I go, that's not going to be much help. I don't read Spanish. You know, I say, what's, what is this, what is this book all about? Mm-hmm. I thought it was about, thought it was about rock art and I thought it was telling me something. So I tried to read it. Can't even follow it. Can't even, it's so complicated and so involved with wow. highly theoretical and other things re- revolving linguistics and prehistoric population movements and, and Mesoamerica, which I knew nothing about to speak of. I said, wow, but this is important now and you have to read this and figure it out. <laughs> mm-hmm. So what do I do? I go to the back, the index, and I, I go word by word and then I trace the word, go back and read the places throughout the book that relate to that particular term. And I begin bit by bit, element by element, you know, chapter paragraph by paragraph, beginning to understand what she's talking about. It was a real struggle. I also then began to understand by reading the the few English versions of literature that references this particular subject, just to get a grasp of what she was talking about. Mm -hmm. It took me two years of effort to really figure out what Mm. the hell she was talking about. But I finally did. (laughs) And and the reason that I'm bringing this up is she studied a panel, a huge rock art painting that exists in a rock shelter in South Texas. It was part of the Pecos tradition. Mm-hmm. And she argued that that particular panel, that painting, was a record of the sacred narrative or uh, oral traditions, creation stories of ancient Uto Aztecans. And I go, well, that's interesting. Really? Yeah. And, and I said, well, that's interesting that, you know, kind of parallel. We believe that, that the Koso people were also ancient Uto Aztecans. In fact, this is where some people believe that this is the, one of the areas that the ancient Uto Aztecans uh, lived in and, you know, had an ancient homeland or an ancient area in which they they uh, lived and prospered early on, very early on in their development. Mm-hmm. Well, what she said is that there was a figure, a major figure in this panel that was a lunar goddess. <laughs> so we had, we had a lunar goddess. And then around the lunar goddess was the five pilgrims that were Uh, following the lunar goddess. The lunar goddess was helping to light the way for the five pilgrims. And they were were journeying to the uh, spirit mountain to create the sun. And I said, well, that's Hmm. pretty interesting. Hmm. And I looked back and I said, well, you know, we have a a figure in this one panel that uh, is here in Little Pet, and it has sort of a crescent moon underneath it. And there are five figures surrounding this uh, figure. And so those could, in fact, be similar pilgrims. Hmm. Interesting. Hmm. Yeah. So there was, a, there was some parallels there. 
Well, the more I read in this little book about some of these themes, the more I began to see parallels. One of the things she kept saying was, if you find snakes, specifically rattlesnakes, but other snakes as well, depicted uh, with these figures, those snakes, in fact, have a very important metaphor, meaning deep religious symbolic load. And the Mm -hmm. snakes have to do with rain. They have to be with rain and life and renewal and revitalization and resurrection and transmogrification, et cetera, et cetera, Mm -hmm. et cetera. So I said, well, that's interesting. Well, the snakes were up there at the top of Coso Peak and they looked just like those other ones that she was talking about. Then down below, we see the snakes again. And I said, hmm. Hmm. I said, well, tell me more about this story, Carolyn. You know, what's this creation narrative say? Well, it says that when they uh, got together, they were creating the sun. And when the sun was created, one of them had to commit self-sacrifice and burn themselves up in the fire. And after he was burned here, this particular pilgrim was burned up, he went and became the sun. Now, the sun was created, but because it didn't have enough energy, it was not rising high enough in the heavens. Hmm. And so the five primordial pilgrims had to do something because the sun was burning up the earth and melting the uh, ice on the uh, high mountains. (laughs) So what they did was they raised the heavens up and they were the, they were the heavenly pillars to do that. And that's what was being shown in this panel. They were being raised up and you could see their hands moving up into the clouds, (laughs) which is the way this uh, story goes talking about these, uh, the five primordial pilgrims and five being the most important number for Uto Aztecan cultures. Well, you may, you may have mentioned it, but just kind of taking in this whole story, that panel in Texas that was similar, yes. that spun this whole thing off. Did that date to before, again, before or after the Coso Range stuff? She believes it dates to about 2000 BC, which is about the same age as, okay. as the panel, the Middle Archaic. Now, what further prompted my interest, and, and I didn't come up with this, was a colleague who, who had uh, studied, one of my students who got her PhD, studying Coso rock art. And she came with, mm-hmm. you know, identified the same thing. And we began looking at an inventory of these zoomorphic figures. There was a book that came out about that same time. It was by uh, Caroline Maddock. And... She, many years before, before the high security came and they didn't allow people all over the base, she had a high-ranking husband who was a base executive. (laughs) And so she was allowed almost freedom to go all over the base, take photographs and make drawings. And she decided to examine these decorated animal human figures. Okay. Well, 
I think we'll take our final break and come back on the other side and talk about that for sure, because that sounds amazing. So let's do that. We'll be back in just a minute. You may have heard my pitch for membership. It's a great idea and really helps out. However, you can also support us by picking up a fun t-shirt, sticker, or something from a large selection of items from our T Public store. Head over to arcpodnet.com slash shop for a link. That's arcpodnet.com slash shop to pick up some fun swag and support the show. Welcome back to the final segment of episode 37 of the Rock Art Podcast. So... All right. So now we're down to the point where we've got this, we've got this woman who had a high ranking husband on the most, one of the most secure Navy bases, uh, or if not military bases in the world. And she has almost sole privileged access <laughs> to a lot of rock art. So where do we go from there? She published a book finally, many, many, many years after she did the work. And in that book, she has 450 sketches of wow. what's called decorated animal human figures. They also call them patterned bodied anthropomorphs mm -hmm. that exist within the Kosos. Hmm. So what's interesting about that is the conventional wisdom by all people who, who discuss these particular figures as class of elements within the Koso, you know, canopy is the conventional wisdom that these are all shamans and they're all men. And that, uh, that these are there memorializing their visions and depicting themselves with uh, decorated coats and associated regalia. Well, mm -hmm. that's fine. I can, I can live with that. I thought that was rather interesting. Yet, as both myself and a PhD student from the University of Florida who had a chance to view them and visit with them and do the same thing over and over again and take hundreds if not thousands of photographs during her field work for her PhD dissertation, we, mm -hmm. we began to see something a bit different. We began to classify the figures and examine them for their various attributes and found instead that they were overwhelmingly women. Hmm. They're women because they have uh, both the, the genitals, uh, the attributes of their genitals show that, they also have these, um, yeah. uh, this, this hairdo, which is uh, typically identified with women that uh, are coming of age and on their first menses. And this Hopi-style hairdo, it's called squash blossoms or butterflies. And in fact, in a number of the cases, it shows them uh, menstruating. There, there's a stream hmm. of blood coming from their uh, genital area. Independent of that, there's a there's a so as we began to study and 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 be looking at that, we were able to examine the 450 different you know examples of this class. We found that 89 of them were definitively women, 25 were men, and hmm. 25 were both had had the reproductive organs or were controversial, we could not figure out. There was some, some means of communicating their gender, but it looked like they were almost androgynous in the sense of having, having something that we could not definitively identify. Well, if they're, if they're females and if they're decorated animal human figures, is it possible that what we were seeing was not just a, a memorialization or self-identification of a ritualist, 
but perhaps we're talking about some sort of a deity, some sort of mm-hmm. a some sort of a goddess figure. How's that? And so hmm. I began to explore that and found that such goddess figures worldwide, when they're they're called earth mothers, or also sometimes animal mistresses, are often shown with weaponry. I go, with weaponry? How can that be? That sounds almost like an oxymoron. It's a, it's a paradox. These are women right. shown with the weapons from men. Yeah. But what the, what the point was, was that these weapons are the symbols of life and death. In other words, it's life because unless men hunted and killed certain key prey animals, they would not eat. They would not have the meat that they need. They also needed those kinds of weapons that are sometimes multi-purpose and used to uh, skin hides and also as tools. And so by depicting that weaponry with this female goddess figure, it produced a meaning or an image, a symbolism having to do with life and death, but also the concept of renewal and regeneration. Well, that's exactly what this lunar goddess figure in ancient Uto-Aztecan, in Mesoamerican metaphor is intended to communicate. Two cultures that, that preserve this ancient sort of symbology and, and ritual and, and oral tradition as the Huichol in southern United States and Texas and northern Mexico and the Aztecs. Mm-hmm. And we have that, that literature, that written literature that tells us specifically about a lunar goddess, a female deity that is associated with snakes and that has as its image or as its meaning, as its metaphor, the, re- the renewal of the world, the regeneration of animals and people, if that makes any sense. Yeah. Wow. I went to Mexico City and, and, and uh, you know, lectured at one point as a, as a guest scholar. It's one of the highlights of my life to yeah. uh, Guan- Guanajuato University. And because of that, I was able to go to the Museo de Nacional, which is the museum in Mexico City. And it's supposedly one of the best museums in the world. And I got to mm-hmm. see the statue, the famous statue of what they call Coatlicue. Coatlicue is the lunar goddess to the uh, Aztecs. And it was excavated. Mm-hmm. It's a, I don't know, 10, 15 ton statue that stands, what, Jeez. maybe 10, 15 feet tall, right? Right. So it certainly is much more impressive than my Coso rock art. But yet again, <laughs> but yet again, it's interesting because Coatlicue, being a lunar goddess, has avian feet and avian legs. Mm-hmm. It is considered to be a lunar goddess. And it also is known as, its name means snake skirt. <laughs> and so it's, it's formed and also birthing a snake. Okay. So there's a lot of overlap in this symbolism of snakes, this, this metaphor of these creatures, both the birds and the snakes seem to be part and parcel 
of this package of meaning and uh, personality or zoomorphic sort of conundrum that exists in the Kosos. And all this is brand new to me. It's like we're reviewing the same information with a whole different uh, prism to examine it entirely differently, if that makes any sense. All right. So that is super interesting to me because you're talking about, you know, very different areas, different people, but similar ideology and symbology and and the way to categorize these things. Now, what what could possibly be the reasons for this? And I'll, I'll give three things that I'm thinking right now. I mean, sure. one is there's some sort of common thing amongst all these that goes further back, right? So there's a commonality that they all share. And maybe that, you know, those people that that share a common descent, you know, spread out. And then these ideas proliferated throughout these cultures in, in seemingly different areas, but with a common origin. Or is there a common cognitive development that causes them to see the world in very similar ways, in similar spaces and with similar ideas? Or is it an actual cultural transmission of ideas? Is it, you know, some people saw one thing and it's just transmitted across the landscape and you've got similar ideas like religion, you know, translates across the planet today. You know, right. Catholicism didn't start in the United States, but we certainly have it here. Right. <laughs> I mean, it's a, exactly. It's a exactly. Cultural, right. Or is it, is it completely random? <laughs> right. Right. And that, and that was troubling to me. And, and so in writing this original article, I considered all three of those different alternatives yeah. There may be some sort of common, call it uh, anthropological genetic connection, linguistic connection from mm -hmm. this ancient stratum of Udo Aztecans from Eastern California to the Hopi, who are Udo Aztecan, through the Huichol and into the Aztec phenomenon. What I'm talking about in terms of the Aztec understanding and cosmology uh, harkens back to a very ancient, ancient underlying stratum of what they even call, and this is a whole other story, an obsidian religion. <laughs> they've, they've called it an obsidian religion. How can they do that, wow. Alan? Well, in, yeah. in amongst the Aztec, they had uh, enormous quantities of volcanic glass that they used, and their particular deities incorporated the concept of obsidian. One wore obsidian mm -hmm. sandals. One was an obsidian wow. mi mirror. They used obsidian in their sacrifices, etc. Mm -hmm. Well, if you look back and connect Koso, what a better place to talk about an obsidian religion because it sat on and was part of one of the largest obsidian trade networks in all of California, right. going from Eastern California over the Sierras into the Central Valley, across the coast range and out to the Channel Islands. And that mm -hmm. particular route had been in existence, we know for a fact, for 10,000 years. So there was this ancient connection, volcanic glass to volcanic glass. Also, Koso is a very, you know, it's, it's an area, it's an arid area that is, a, is the land of fire. Mm -hmm. You're looking at Volcano Peak, you're looking at Red Hill Cinder Cone, you're looking at lava flows, you're looking at the uh, Koso Hot Springs, on and on and on. So the area was one that uh, is parallel to the Valley of Mexico in terms of having an active pattern of the landscape of volcanism. Well, it's essentially the same 
mountain range down there, isn't it? It just extends on down I mean, yeah, the whole feature yeah. and series of mountain ranges. They extend yeah, right into Mexico. Exactly. And so yeah. also the linguists have told me that this is, is a area that the modern linguists have now begun to believe growing evidence that ancient Uto-Aztecan, proto-Uto-Aztecan people may in fact have lived and developed their culture as hunter-gatherers in a pre-civilization, pre-sedentary nature as, as, a, uh, as foragers at a very, very early time. And so what I'm talking about in terms of the iconography is one that is ancient. We're talking about a pattern that goes from, let's say, 6,000 BC to about 2,000 BC, way, way early. So we're talking about a four to 10,000 year old set of patterns. The imagery I'm talking about often is very old. It's the oldest set of representational images. It's overlaid by more recent kinds of imagery. So Mm -hmm. when this pattern occurred, when this ritualistic ideational deification of women occurred was a very early one. And it was replaced by a principally androcentric or male-centered cosmology later in time. You don't see the same emphasis. You see men, you see them being, you know, identified as males in terms of their gender and, and their genitals. You see them hunting, actively hunting. And this feminine uh, beginnings, these this ma- ma- matriarchal set of images is still recognized and it's also refreshed, but it's not developed. So it's a, it, it's, it's much more uh, diminutive and overtaken by a whole other set of imagery, principally related to bighorn sheep. Hmm. If you understand what I'm saying, there's just a whole different set yeah. of patterns and, and strategies going wow. on. Wow. So okay. it's an in, it's an interesting story, and I'm still working working out the details. But the data itself is interesting and somewhat compelling in indicating some sort of parallels and some sort of different set of activities heretofore really unrecognized in the literature when we talk about COSO research. Well, we only have a couple minutes left, so I mean. What's the what's the final conclusion here? Or what's next? Well, two things are next. One is to to sort of polish up a a decent uh, lengthy article, and the other is to publish a book that uh, deals with mm-hmm. the imagery and the possibility of the linguistic and ethnic connections between Coso and the American Southwest moving into Mexico. And I know that's going to be rather controversial. (laughs) You think? (laughs) Right. And, and maybe a companion podcast series on the whole topic. Oh yes. Yes. I I like it. I like it. (laughs) All right. Well, this has been great. Uh, Thanks Alan for this. You're welcome. Like you said, we're going to talk about this kind of stuff a lot more. And I've actually got some ideas for, some podcast stuff related to this. Look for that on the APN at some point in the future. But uh, anyway, thanks for that. And we will be back next week with another amazing topic. I don't know what it is. (laughs) (laughs) 
thanks. Thanks so much for entertaining the notion of listening to me. God bless you all and see you next week. Thanks for listening to the Rock Art Podcast with Dr. Alan Garfinkel and Chris Webster. You can find this podcast on the educational podcast app Lyceum, L-Y-C-E-U-M, and wherever you find podcasts. Find show notes and contact information at www.arcpodnet.com forward slash rock art. Thanks for listening and thanks for sharing this podcast with your family and friends. This episode was produced by Chris Webster from his RV Traveling America, Tristan Boyle in Scotland, and the Archaeology Podcast Network, and was edited by Chris Webster. This has been a presentation of the Archaeology Podcast Network. Visit us on the web for show notes and other podcasts at www.archpodnet.com. Contact us at chris at archaeologypodcastnetwork.com. Thanks again for listening to this episode and for supporting the Archaeology Podcast Network. If you want these shows to keep going, consider becoming a member for just $7.99 US dollars a month. That's cheaper than a venti quad eggnog latte. Go to archpodnet.com slash members for more info.